Tonight, uh, we're going to be getting back into the Gospel of Matthew, and we are still in the Sermon on the Mount. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. I feel like we should start taking bets. Like, how long are we going to be in the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, Because, you know, it's just, it feels like we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount forever. I always intend, just wanted you guys to know, in case I haven't said it before, I always intend on covering, like, a lot of verses. I'm like, okay, this week it's going to be, you know, we're going to cover 10 verses. But then when it comes time to studying and prepping, it's like, oh, dude, there's so much in just these two verses. I can't, I can't skip over this. And so it ends up taking longer. Um, so bear with us, or bear with me, rather. Um, but if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, uh, please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. Now, as a warning, as a warning to everybody, uh, we're going to be flipping through our Bibles a lot. All right, tonight we're going to be flipping through our Bible, start stretching out your fingers and all that stuff. I'm going to ask you all, as we go to different portions of Scripture, I'm going to ask you guys to turn to those portions of Scripture so that you can read the verses, so you can read the Scriptures yourself in your Bible. You know, we, 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 we do have the verses up here on the screens for like visitors or, you know, people who don't necessarily believe in Jesus. They're not Christians. They're just here because somebody invited them or, or maybe you forgot your Bible. So we have the verses on the screen for, for those reasons. But if you're a believer, I expect you as a believer to have your Bible. And I expect you as a believer to have your Bible and to have your Bible open and to flip through your Bible as we study the Bible. You know, you, you got to get to know your Bible. You, uh, you guys ever notice that when you don't open the pages of your Bible, the, the, the pages kind of stick together? How many of you guys have pages in your Bible that are still stuck together because you haven't opened it? You know, that's a good question. Well, I want you guys tonight or tomorrow to go through your Bibles and see like, oh, 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 I've never looked at this part of my Bible because these pages are kind of stuck. That's how Bibles come. So um, I want you guys to, to look at the scriptures in your Bible. You'll get more out of the Bible study by looking at the verses in your Bible. So, um, yes, so we're in the middle of looking at the model prayer. The model prayer, we're in the middle of it. Uh, we're looking at verses 9 through 13. Last week, we looked at verses 9 and 10, uh, you know, the verses that basically in the prayer, you're focusing on God, uh, our Father. And this week, we're going to be looking at uh, verse, uh, verses 11 and 13. So we're going to be looking at verses 11 and 13. We're, gonna, we're not going to look at verse 12 tonight. We're going to be looking at verse 12 and 14 and 15 next week because they, they talk about the same thing, forgiveness. So we're going to save that for next week. So tonight we're just going to be looking at 11 and 13. Uh, so we're just going to get into it. Let's, let's, let's hear what the Lord has to say to us tonight. And then we can enter into our time of communion. But before we do that, of course, as always, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that you are our Father in heaven. And just like we've been looking at these verses, you know, uh, we, we want to honor your name as holy. We want to take your name as holy Lord, and we want your will to be done. We want your kingdom to come uh, in, in our hearts, Lord. We want you to change us, God. And so I pray, Father, that as we get into your word, that you would, God, that you would speak to us, that you would empty us of ourselves. There are so many people here, God, so many different circumstances, so many different situations, Lord, and you're aware of all of them. And God, we need to hear from you. And so, God, I just pray that in your grace that you would speak to us and that you would change us tonight. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you're a note taker, the title of tonight's message is Keep Praying Like This. Keep Praying Like This. Last week it was Pray Like This. Um, But let's read. It's actually, let me open up my Bible to Matthew chapter 6. And you guys, as we flip through the scriptures, I want to I make sure, hey, if you don't know where a, a, a book of the Bible is, look at your table of contents, all right? There is absolutely zero shame in looking at your table of contents to find where a specific book of the Bible is. That, that's what it's there for. So I just want to encourage you guys, if there's anybody here like, I don't know where all the books of the Bible are, it's all right. There's, there's, go to the front of your Bible, it's going to tell you where each book is. So just want to make sure everybody feels comfortable enough to do that. And nobody better be looking at someone like, oh, oh apparently you don't know your Bible. Like, no, nah, stop that. Get that out of here. All right, so 
Let's read the entirety of the model prayer, Matthew chapter 6. It's going to be verses uh, 9 through 15. It says, Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. So, beginning in verse 11, it says, Give us today our daily bread. That's where we're going to start tonight. Now, about this verse, John MacArthur, he writes this. He says, To many Christians in the Western world today, such a request may seem needless and inappropriate. You know, why should we ask God for what we already have in such abundance? What would be a completely understandable request of a Christian in Ethiopia or Cambodia seems irrelevant on the lips of a well-fed American. And it's a good point. It's a good point. You know, living in such a place that we live where food is readily available and affordable for the majority of the population, it can lead us, it can lead us to neglect the act of asking God for our daily bread. It may even cause us to think that this portion of the model prayer, give us today our, our daily bread, may cause us to think that this doesn't even apply to us. This, this can't apply to us, but of course it does because it's the word of God, and the word of God applies, all of it applies to us. You know, and commentators, they make the argument that when we are asking for our daily bread, that um, we're asking for our daily sustenance in every sense of the word. We're asking for our daily sustenance in every sense of the word. All of our physical needs, that includes food, clothing, shelter, health, a good government, you know, a job, good weather, you know, good relationships, all of these things. And, and sure, yeah, why not? Like, I agree with that. When we ask God for our daily bread, we're asking for our daily sustenance in, all, in every sense of the word. I agree with that. But our daily bread... It can also apply to our spiritual need for the word of God. Uh, turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 16. It's going to be towards the beginning of your Bible. Second book of the Bible. Exodus 16. And so, when God was taking the Israelites through the wilderness, the people began to get hungry. We're talking about daily bread, the daily sustenance. And when the people got hungry in the wilderness, uh, they would complain to God about how hungry they were. And so this is what it says in Exodus chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 2. It says, The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted, Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make, us, to make this whole assembly die of hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to get out each day and gather enough for that day. And we'll pause there. So we're not, we're not even going to go into the fact that the people were saying that they wish they could go back to their horrible and terrible slavery in Egypt because, hey, at least we had bread and meat. We're not going to get into that. You know, and of course, we can always identify with the Israelites whenever they start having these types of behaviors. We can definitely see ourselves in that, but that's for another Bible study. But the people were hungry. The Israelites were hungry, so the Lord told Moses that he was going to be dropping bread from heaven. And this bread was called manna. That's what they called it. And they would collect what would fall on the ground. They would take it, they would boil it, or they would bake it, and they would make the bread, and then they would eat it. And, and from a simple reading, if you, if you just simply read Exodus 16, you get the idea that God was simply satisfying a physical hunger. He, that, that, that's, that's all he was doing if you just read Exodus 16. He's just satisfying a physical hunger by dropping this bread from heaven. But let's turn our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8 to get a little more insight. Let's get a little more insight into this. Deuteronomy chapter 8, just a few books over. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, and this is what Moses says. He's talking to the people. He says, God humbled you. By letting you go hungry, then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And we'll pause there. So it wasn't simply a physical satisfaction, a physical satiation that, uh, that, that God was providing for these people. He wasn't just satisfying their physical hunger. It was to teach the people a lesson about the need that they had for the word of God. And so again, please flip your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 1, back to the New Testament, as we continue looking at this, this, this bread that came out of heaven, this manna that came out of heaven, and this manna representing the Word of God, our need for the Word. John chapter 1. And so as people in general, as, as just human beings, people in general, we have a physical need. We have physical needs that must be met in order for us to survive and to flourish. You know, we need food, we need clothing, we need shelter, we need good relationships, we need a safe environment. We need, we need these things. But specifically as God's people, as God's people, for those of us in here who are God's people, we have a great spiritual need. And that spiritual need, it must be met in order for us to, to spiritually survive and spiritually flourish. And that need is for the word of God. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, this is what it says about Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Jump down to verse 14. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus... Jesus is the word who was and who is God, and he is the creator of all things, and he became flesh. He became a man and dwelt among his creation. He is the word. Now again, flip over just a few chapters over. John chapter 6. I told you. I told you. I warned you. Don't say I didn't warn you. John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, verse 32. So Jesus said, John 1 says that Jesus is the word. And in John chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So right here, Jesus is stating explicitly that he is the bread that is talked about in the Old Testament. He is the manna. He is the daily bread that the Israelites were told to go out and gather. And they were told to only gather enough manna for the day. That's what they were told. They were told just to gather enough for the day. If they gathered more than what was enough for the day and tried to save some of the manna to leave it for the next day, the next day that manna would be spoiled and it would be covered in maggots. So God was telling them, no, no, just get what's, what's enough for today. They needed to go out daily and get a daily ration and repeat it again the next day. And so we too, we too are to gather our daily bread by spending time with the word. The daily bread that came out of heaven for the Israelites, it represented the word of God. It says, he gave you manna that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but bought on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is the manna. He is the daily bread. He is every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. And to further drive this point home, turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Jesus is the manna. He is the daily bread. Jesus is every word that comes from the mouth of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He has spoken to us by his son. The Lord in the Old Testament, he would speak through prophets that's how he would speak to the people. He would speak through prophets. Moses was known as a prophet. Jeremiah is a prophet. Uh, Elijah was a prophet. You know, if, if you're following us in our reading plan, we're, we're reading through the Bible uh, in chronological order. For these past few weeks, we've been going back and forth to different prophets. Jeremiah, Nahum, Micah. You know, we're, we're reading through all these prophets. But his word doesn't come through prophets anymore. It doesn't. 
If anybody claims to be a prophet of God, uh, you better watch out for that. God's word does not come through prophets anymore. His final revelation and, and, and the word, his final word, his final revelation has come through the word, and that's Jesus. It has come through Jesus, and we find the full revelation of Jesus right here. This book right here, this is the full revelation. So much so that the Bible says, hey, if you add to it, we're going to add curses onto you. If you take away from it, we're going to take away blessings from you. That's why it's super important for you guys to have a Bible. You know, if you guys were here last night, Pastor Steve was talking about, hey, if you don't have a Bible, you need to get a Bible. You need to have your own Bible that you can write in, highlight, interact with. Not on your app, not on your phone. It's not the same thing. You got to have a physical Bible. It's different. So we need the daily bread. We need the daily bread in every sense of the word, physical and spiritual. So I encourage you all, and I'm encouraging myself to get after it. Just get after it. We need this daily bread. It is a necessity, so get after it. But I wanted us to make sure that we didn't completely overlook the, the physical aspect of the portion of this prayer. You know, we're looking at the spiritual of the word, but let's, let's look at the physical aspect of, of this prayer of give us this day our daily bread. And, and I wanted to make sure that, that our position in this place that we live in, we live in the United States of America, we live in California, we live in a very rich place, and I wanted to make sure that our position in this place that we live in, it doesn't skew our approach to this request of physical daily bread. Because even though we are all well-fed, even though we are all, for the most part, we are all well-supplied, I would dare say that for the majority of us in here, the majority of us in here, if not all of us, we don't wonder where our next meal is coming from. I would dare say, I would bet my life, I'd be willing to bet my life on that, with a few exceptions, I'm sure. But though this may be true, though we are well supplied, we are still to come to God in humility and to ask for our daily physical bread. We need to remember, we need to remember that God is our provider. He is our provider. And, and, and we can't get comfortable. We can't get forgetful because there seems to be a never-ending supply of daily nourishment. This is extremely important, and I'll show you why. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. to remember that God is the provider. We can't get comfortable. We can't, we can't be forgetful that God is the one who's supplying our food. And this is what it says in Proverbs 30. And we're going to start in verse 8, towards the middle of verse 8. It says, Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of God. As I've said, excluding any possible exceptions in here, we are all in a place where we are well supplied. We are well fed for the most part. Again, provided any exceptions, possible exceptions, we are well fed and well supplied. We are so accustomed to being fed and that could cause us to come to a conclusion that says, well, I don't really need to ask God for my daily food. I don't need to ask God for my daily bread. Like, it's going to come. Like, if I ask him or if I don't ask him, it's going to come regardless. So why even bother asking him? Why waste my breath? And if this is the place where we have come, whether intentionally or we've accidentally come into this place where we're just like, oh, what's the point of asking? If I know it's going to come. Then we are fulfilling verse 9 in Proverbs 30. We're fulfilling it. We're, we, we have so much. We are so confident in the much that we have that we are saying with our actions, who is the Lord? We're denying him. Whether you choose to actually admit that or not, you are denying him when you don't come to him and, and acknowledge that, no, I, Lord, can you please supply me with my daily bread? We have so much and we are forgetting everything. We are forgetting that everything, it comes from him. It comes from him. I'm not saying that we need to bring ourselves to a state of uncertainty. 
You know, I'm not saying that like we need to make ourselves unconfident in God's provision. Like, oh, well, is he going to feed me today? Like, no, we, we know that God is going to feed us. Like, remember, he is our father and he loves us. He desires good things for us. He will always take care of us. He will supply our needs. But we need to make sure that our confidence, this confidence that we have, that it doesn't turn into arrogance and it doesn't turn into entitlement. We need to be careful. God supplying our needs is just as much a gracious act of his providence when we have an abundance as it is when we don't know exactly when or how our next meal is going to be coming. It's all God's grace. It's the same grace. It's no less present for those of us who have plenty, and it's no more present for those who have little. God's grace is the same. His provision is the same. It all comes from the same place, whether you have much or you have little. It's all God's provision, and it's the same provision. So that should affect the way that, way that we view ourselves and the way that we view others who may be less fortunate than we are. It all comes from him. It all comes from God. None of it is guaranteed. None of these things that we have, our daily bread, it is not guaranteed in the sense that we haven't done anything to deserve it or earn it. We haven't done anything. The only thing that we have done to earn or deserve is we've, we've sinned, and so we've earned and we deserve wrath. That's all we've earned and deserved. All of our provisions, it's all an act of his grace And we are so thankful for his grace and his love towards us. Are we not? I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that he has given me the right to be called his child. Are you guys thankful for that? Man, I'm thankful for that. And, And I am thankful that I can be confident that he will provide for me because I am his child. He's gonna take care of me. But again, it's not because I earned it or deserved it. It's because of his grace. It's all grace. So in this model prayer, We are aware and we are proclaiming our awareness in these words that Jesus is giving that God is the supplier of our daily bread in all of its meanings, all of it, physical and spiritual. And so as we move on to verse 13, uh, please turn your Bibles to the book of James. Let's go to the book of James. It's going to be towards the end. So in Matthew 6, 13, Jesus goes on to say, and do not bring us into temptation. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, that may seem like a strange request to make of God, that, you know, to ask him not to bring you into temptation, uh, because that would imply that God tempts you. You know, but James 1, 13, it says this, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So God doesn't tempt us to do evil ever. He doesn't ever tempt us with evil or to do evil. But he does allow us to enter into times of testing. He allows us to enter into times of trials. I mean, in the very beginning of of James uh, chapter 1 and verse 2, this is what it says. It says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So we should consider it a good thing when we enter into various trials because it will end up being a good thing for our faith personally. It's a good thing that we enter into various trials. We're supposed to rejoice in that. But as we are enduring the trial and when we, and when we are tempted in the trial, because that will happen, we'll be tempted to do something we ought not to do. We shouldn't think to ourselves that God is the one who is tempting us through the trial. No, he's not tempting us through the trial. He's not tempting us to do something we ought not to do. One commentator writes, he says this, says, when Jesus says, do not bring us into temptation, the word translated temptation, it can indicate either temptation or testing. 
The meaning here most likely carries the sense, allow us to be spared from difficult circumstances that would tempt us to sin. Although God never directly tempts believers, he does sometimes lead them into situations to test them. And we can find scriptural support for this idea. So please, turn your Bibles. We're going to look at that scriptural support. Turn your Bibles to the book of Judges. We're going to go back to the Old Testament. It's, it's like the seventh book of the Bible, the book of Judges, and we're going to go to chapter 2. We're going to look at this idea of God bringing us into a time of testing, and it can lead to a time of tempting. And so Judges chapter 2, as you guys are turning there, after God brought the Israelites through the wilderness, he brought them out of Egypt, he took them through the wilderness, uh, he's taken them to the promised land, Moses dies, because he was the one that God used to lead them out, he dies, Joshua takes over, and through Joshua and the people, they, they, they start conquering the land that God had promised to them, but ultimately it was God conquering the land through them, uh, but the Israelites as we humans tend to do, uh, we don't do the job right. And so they didn't conquer everybody. They didn't conquer everybody. Uh, they didn't conquer the land completely. And they would eventually, because of this, start following the idols of the people that were in the land. The, the, these people that they were supposed to conquer, they started following the idols of these people. And this is what it says in Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 20, says this. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he declared, Because this nation has violated my covenant that I made with their ancestors and disobeyed me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I did this to test Israel and to see whether or not they would keep the Lord's way by walking in it as their ancestors did. Verse 23, the Lord left these nations and did not drive them out immediately. He did not hand them over to Joshua. Let's keep going, chapter 3, verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left in order to test all those in Israel who had experienced none of the wars in Canaan. This was to teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had not fought before. Jump down to verse 4. The Lord left them. He left these enemies to test Israel to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands he had given their ancestors through Moses. But they settled among the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the ites. The Israelites, they took their daughters as wives for themselves, and they gave their own daughters to their sons and worshipped their gods. And so here's the situation. God decided that he was no longer going to help the Israelites by driving out their enemies. He was going to leave their enemies in the land. And he said that he was, going, he was doing this in order to test them. It was a test. God tests us. Rejoice when you are tested with various trials. He was doing it to test them, to see if they were going to be loyal to him or if they were going to forsake him and continuing to follow the idols of the land and forsake him. And so here's where we find this idea that God does not does not lead us into temptation, but he will lead us into situations that test us, and these situations, they may present us with opportunities to be tempted and to fall into sin, but God isn't the one tempting us. It's our own sinful inclinations that tempt us, like we read in James. God is testing us, but our creative flesh and our creative enemy is looking for ways to be tempted by sin and to fall into it. And so Jesus, through this model prayer that we're looking at, he is telling us that we should be spending time in prayer, acknowledging the fact that there can be situations where our Father will lead us into times of testing that can also result in opportunistic times of temptation. And he's instructing us to pray against those situations. Lord, do not bring me into these times of testing that can lead to possible temptations. Please, please. It's having an accurate self-awareness. That's really all it is, is having an accurate self-awareness, part, this part of the prayer. But, got some good news. If we continue to look at Judges, if we continue to look at the book of Judges as an example of this idea of testing, a time of testing provided, providing chances for tempting, 
Here's a good question I want to ask. How did the whole drama start off in Judges? How did it start off? Like, what was the catalyst that led to the testing that also brought the temptations that we read about in Judges? Well, look again at Judges chapter 2, verse 20. What does it say? It says, The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he declared, Because this nation has violated my covenant that I made with their ancestors and disobeyed me, I will no longer drive out their enemies before them. The people violated. The people violated the covenant that they made with the Lord. They disobeyed the Lord. And for that reason, for that reason, he brought them into a time of testing by leaving the enemy in their land. And so here we are. We are also God's people. Those of us in here who have a a saving relationship in Jesus, we are also God's people, and we have also entered into a covenant with him, just like the Israelites. And Jesus is telling us, in this model prayer, he's telling us, his, his new covenant people, to ask our Father to keep us from these kinds of tests, to deliver us from evil, the evil that is out there and the evil that is present in this flesh. But here's something amazing. As his new covenant people... As his children, as those who are in the kingdom of heaven, our covenant with God is nothing like the covenant that the Israelites had in the Old Testament. Our covenant is based on the perfect and unblemished blood of Jesus Christ. That's what our covenant is based on. This covenant and all of the benefits therein have been guaranteed to us by the presence of God's Holy Spirit in these bodies. God is living inside of us. Those of us who believe, we have been born again. We have been made new. We are new. And God's Holy Spirit has been sealed inside of us. He is, he's stuck there, you could say. God's Holy Spirit is inside of us. We are his temple. This is his home for us believers. This covenant is based on the victory that Christ has achieved. It's based on Jesus saying, it is finished. It's based on Jesus taking away the sins of the world, but specifically taking away your sins, removing your sins from you, casting them into the sea. As far as the east is to the west, that's where your sins are, as close to you. So when God brings us into these times of testing, when he does bring us into these times of testing, he is doing so knowing that the victory is already ours. We already have the victory whenever we enter into times of testing. He's on our side. You could say that God is rooting for you. Although I wouldn't say that because it sounds a little cheesy. But God is on your side. Not because in and of ourselves that there's anything good in us or that we have the ability or the strength to overcome. But because Christ has already overcome it all. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He has already overcome it. He's already conquered it. But we pray to our Father, please keep us from tests that provide temptations. Deliver us from the evil one. And I find it interesting. It's interesting that this is the last thing. This is the last thing that Jesus presents in this model prayer. This is, the, this is like the conclusion of the model prayer. I'll probably bring this up again next week, so be prepared to hear this again. But as we come to our Father in prayer, the start of the model prayer, we are acknowledging his fatherhood in our lives. That he is our Father in heaven. And, and that he is to be honored as holy. Our lives ought to be lives of obedience as we take his name, but we are not taking his name in vain. We are taking his name and we are living holy. And as we acknowledge that we want his will to be done, and as we acknowledge that we want his kingdom to rule both physically and spiritually in the hearts of people, as we acknowledge that his provision is what we need and and we need him to be the one who actually provides these things, both physically and spiritually, as we acknowledge our constant need for forgiveness and the responsibility for us to be forgiving towards others, we'll talk about that next week. And as we, and as all of these things, 
in the model prayer as all, as all of these things are brought to the forefront of our minds through prayer. All of these acknowledgments, they produce a posture that is humble and submissive and holy towards God. And if that's where our posture is, and if, and if that's the attitude of our hearts, then there won't necessarily be a testing like the testing we read about in Judges. There won't be this test from the Lord where, let's be honest, we all kind of knew where this testing was going to end up for the Israelites in the book of Judges. We knew they were going to fall. We knew they were going to forsake God. We, we knew that. You, didn't have, you don't have to know much to know that that was going to happen. But that kind of testing where there is, there is temptation there and a likelihood of us falling into the temptation, it doesn't necessarily need to be in our lives. Don't get me wrong. We will always have tests. We will always have struggles. We will always be presented with hardships and tribulation and all of that. That's how our faith grows. That's how we grow. That, that's how our faith is refined. And we should be rejoicing in that. We should rejoice in those things. There will always be tests. And the presence of a test, it means that there's, there's a possibility to pass the test, but it also means there's a possibility to fail the test. There will always be tests. But the testing doesn't necessarily have to include the degree of temptation that we saw with the Israelites. So we can pray and ask the Lord that he keeps us from the, the kind of testing that, that may include temptation, that, that he allow us to be spared from difficult circumstances that would test, tempt us to sin, and, and we can have an answer for that prayer. God, please don't lead me into these types of situations where I'm going to be tempted to sin against you. Please don't bring me into these tests where I'm going to be tempted to sin against you. And we could have an answer in the affirmative from God because all of the aspects of the model prayer that precede this request of being spared from temptation. Our hearts and our minds will be in the best possible place if the model prayer is true and real in our lives. We will be so in tune with the Lord that we are so devoted and we are so submissive to him. Has anyone ever been in that place where you just, you're just spending so much time with him and you're just like, man, you're feeling like spiritually like yoked up, like you're just spiritually strong, you know, because like, you know, you're, you're spending so much time with him. You're spending so much time in prayer. You're spending so much time in the word. You're spending so much time with brothers and sisters edifying each other. You're spending so much time listening to other Bible studies. You're not wasting your time on the secular things. You're not wasting your time on things that waste your time. You're spending so much time on the things of the Lord, and you just feel like so strong when you do those things as opposed to when you don't do those things. Anybody know that kind of strength? That's kind of spiritual strength? You've been there before? That's what we see in the model prayer. That's what's possible. The conclusion of the prayer, keep me from temptation. The conclusion of that prayer is something that is guaranteed to occur when the rest of the prayer is followed and manifest in our lives. The Israelites and judges, they were in rebellion. They were in rebellion. So when the test from the Lord came, it became a temptation that they fell into. But if they, were, if they were to have been in complete surrender to the Lord, in complete obedience to the Lord, if, if their lives would have been a display of the model prayer being true, then the test of the Lord would have come and they would have passed the test. And so it is the same for us. Same for us. So let us make efforts to be these types of believers. A believer who is devoted. A believer who's connected to the Father. You recognize him as Father. You honor him as holy. You honor his name as holy. You are looking for his kingdom to come and you want his will to be done in your life. You know your need for his provision. You're not arrogant or entitled to these things. You know your need for constant forgiveness and you know that you have a great need and a responsibility to be forgiving towards others, to extend that forgiveness towards others. And we can be spared from these tests and circumstances that can, that, can, that can present opportunities to be tempted and to fall. And we will be delivered from evil. We will be if we are this kind of believer. 
if we are this kind of believer. So let's be that kind of believer. Does that make sense? Let's be that kind of believer. You guys, I want to be that kind of believer. Anybody else want to be that kind of believer? Yeah, let's be that kind of believer. All right. So as we enter into our time of communion now, before, you know, the band comes up and all that stuff, um, we are going to be taking communion. But a lot of new people, I don't know where everybody's at, and I want to give an opportunity for anybody who, who is not a child of God, because you don't have faith in Jesus, I want to provide an opportunity to be given the right to be called a child of God. And so we will be taking communion, but I just wanted to be clear, communion is only for believers. It is only for believers. It is only for those who have come into a saving faith in Jesus Christ. They believe in Jesus for the salvation of their souls. They believe in Jesus Christ for the cleansing of their sins, for the forgiveness of their sins, that he rose again from the dead, and that because of that faith, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of them. They're no longer the same person that they used to be. I used to be a drunk. I'm not a drunk anymore because Christ saved me. And everybody, a lot of people in here have that test, have a similar testimony where I used to be this, but I'm not that anymore because Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit changed me. I can't be that person anymore. It's impossible. And so I don't want to assume that just because you're in church, that you're a believer. Just because you're standing in a garage doesn't make you a car. You have to believe you have to profess faith in Jesus Christ. So if there's anybody in here who wants to profess faith in Jesus Christ for the first time, I'm not talking about those of you believers who maybe you had a rough week or you're struggling and you're questioning. I'm not talking about you. I'll get to you. But I'm talking about anybody in here who does not know Jesus. You are, you've been against him your entire life. You don't want anything to do with him. But for some reason, tonight you're hearing this stuff and you're just like, yeah, I think I want forgiveness. I think I want to be in this relationship with this father who's so good and gracious. If that's you, I just want to, I want to pray for you. So just raise your hand so we can, we can pray for you. So we can all pray for you. We don't turn off the lights here. You know, we, we, uh, we, we hey, we're, we're all brothers and sisters here. So anybody? Okay. That's cool. That's cool. Y'all need to start inviting people. Um, <laughs> get these non-believers in here. Um, now, you know, the, the Bible says, you know, don't take communion in an unworthy manner. Um, and so if there's any believers in here, which either all of us are believers in here or somebody just wasn't ready to give their life to Christ, which is, that's fine. Um, but if there's any believers in here, if you guys are living in unrepentant sin, if you guys are doing things that you know you shouldn't be doing, if, if, you're, if you're like the Israelites in, in, in the book of Judges, and you're, just, you're, you're forsaking the Lord, you're going off and following after idols, you don't need to be sacrificing babies on, on a flame to be involved in idolatry. So if there's any believer in here who is, who is in sin right now, and you, you haven't repented of it, you're still, you still have every intention after this service is over and you go home, you have every intention of making a stop by the liquor store and getting some, or you have every intention of getting on your computer, or you have every intention of calling that person up. If that's you in here right now, you are in unrepentant sin. And so you have two options. Either don't take communion, don't bother, because that's serious. Paul wrote that people were getting sick. Some people died because they were taking communion in an unworthy manner. You want to risk it? By all means. But don't take communion. But I would rather the second option be taken. Repent. Repent. Turn away from that sin. You, the victory is already yours. We already have the victory in Christ. Jesus Christ already died for your sins. So just walk in that victory. Say, okay, I'm, I really love this thing. I really like to do this thing. I really love to drink or I really love to have sex. I really love to look at pornography. I really, I don't want to turn away from my homosexual lifestyle. I don't, I don't, whatever it is, insert the unrepentant sin that you have in your life. Repent. Just turn away from it. Like, all right, Lord, I, my feelings are that I love it but I'm going to change my mind because you said it's not right. So I'm going to turn away and I'm going to follow you. So repent, repent. So if there's anybody in here who, who needs to repent, no judgments because we all got garbage. No judgments, but we, we need to pray for each other. We need to hold each other accountable. 
So is there anybody here who needs to be prayed for because there is unrepentant sin? Raise your hand. Again, this is not a judgment. There's, there is no judgment. This is all, all there is. All right, there you go. All there is, is is just forgiveness and grace and us building each other up. So is there anybody else? Okay. Anybody else? All right. Well, let's pray. Band can come on up as we pray, but let's let's pray for these for these for these two that acknowledged that there is something. And if if maybe you didn't want to raise your hand because you felt embarrassed, that's fine. Continue to pray. Just cont- pray, repent, even in your own heart right now. So, Father, thank you so much uh, for the humility, God, that we can come to you and 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 just completely surrender all of our sins to you, Lord. That we can come to you admitting that we are struggling with a sin, Lord. That we that we are we are, we want to do this sinful thing, and we are battling our flesh daily. And so, God, I just I want to pray for these two these two ladies, Lord, these two young ladies who are acknowledging that, God. And, and I just pray, Father, that, that you would just drown them and shower them in your kindness. Your word says that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not your severity. It's not your judgment. It's not the, 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 the scariness of your presence. It is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so I pray in this moment, God, for these two ladies and for anybody else that in this moment, God, that we would just be super hyper aware of the fact that you love us. When we were enemies, you died for us. And so now that we have been given the right to be called your children, how much more are you for us? God, help them to know how much you love them. Help them to believe the gospel. Help them to believe that their sins really were taken away on that cross and that they are perfect in your sight. You see them as perfect because of what Jesus Christ has done. They are wearing his righteousness. And I pray that for anybody else in here who maybe needs to, who needs to repent. And God, I pray that as we prepare to take communion, God, that you would, that you would be in this place, God, that you would just humble us, humble us, God, as we remember. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this right here, it represents the body of Christ. It is not somehow the actual body of Christ. This is not cannibalism. This represents the body of Christ. It represents that his body was ripped open for us. He was flogged. His, his body was literally ripped open. His skin was torn to shreds, muscles and bones exposed. And that's what would happen in the flogging. And then nails would go through his wrists and through his feet. It was extremely painful. It just goes to show the severity of our sin, the ugliness of our sin. That's how ugly our sin is. And he did that for us. He, he, he gave his body for us. And so let us remember that as we... As we uh, come into this time of prayer. We're going to pray before we partake, but let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you sent your one and only son so that if we would believe, we would not perish, but we'd have eternal life. We thank you that though it was gruesome and, and we can't imagine having to go through that ourselves, we thank you that your son willingly took that on his body. He did that for us. And, and, if, and if, if we do not, if we didn't come into a faith in that act, that is what would be awaiting us. And so I thank you, God, that, that your son was the substitution, that he took it for us. And so as we take this bread, God, we remember and we thank you for what Jesus Christ did for us through his body. Let's partake. Let's go ahead and carefully peel back the other layer.
And so similarly, this, this juice, it represents the blood of Jesus. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, animals needed to be sacrificed in order for the sins of the people to be covered. Uh, but it was only going to be covered temporarily. They had to go back year after year after year after year to sacrifice animals. And... The Bible also says that blood, it ratifies a contract. It ratifies a covenant. It makes a covenant sure. It makes it secure. It confirms a covenant. And so Jesus Christ, in spilling his blood, he ratified the covenant, the new covenant, that we can be his children, that the spirit can live inside of us, that we can be new. We can be new creatures because of our faith. His blood confirmed that covenant. His blood washes us clean of our sins. And he only needed to do it once because his blood was perfect. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing that God has done for us. And I just want you guys to know, it, oh man, this walk, this walk, it can be a struggle. It can be hard. The enemy can throw so many things at you. The enemy can somehow, I don't know how he does it, but the enemy can implant thoughts in your mind. He can cause you to think things we're just like, where did that thought come from? And you begin to take responsibility for those thoughts. And, and you begin to apply those thoughts and those attitudes to yourself and say, this is who I am. But let me tell you something. The blood of Christ has cleansed you from all sin. When God looks at you, he sees you as perfect. Because the blood of Christ has cleansed you of your sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what God has done for us through the shedding of his one and only son's blood. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, that you, that you sent your son and that he spilled his blood and that he confirmed the new covenant. The old covenant, we couldn't keep it. The old law, we couldn't keep it. This new covenant, it was all you. It's all you. You did all the work. We just come and we receive. And so we thank you that you confirmed this covenant through this, the spilling of, of your son's blood. We thank you that this blood washes us clean. We thank you that this blood gives us forgiveness. Let us remember. Let's partake.